0: Welcome back, friends, to the Ransomed Heart podcast. John Eldridge here with session number six in a ten-part series that we're doing as we air for the first time ever in a broadcast format some very old conference tapes that feature Brent Curtis and myself in some very, very early teaching and lectures on the sacred romance this week. Session number six on the life of the beloved. Let me ask you a question. If they were going to make a movie of your life, now I realize already you're saying no one would ever make a movie of my life, but if they were, a movie was going to be made of your life, who would you like Hollywood to cast in your role? Who would you like to play you? And who are you afraid that they would cast in the role? The first one, they're easy. They're easy for me. Of course, I want them to cast Harrison Ford in my life story, right? And I am afraid that they would actually choose Pee-wee Herman. which tells you something about my own sort of aspirations and fears. That we all live somewhere between those two places. The person that maybe in our best moments we hope that we might be, or at least become, and the person in our more fearful moments that we think we truly are. Because what I want to talk about, as we move into the afternoon now, is who are we? What is our place in the story? If the story that I told this morning in the four acts is the sort of the broad brushstroke version of what is really going on, that it's not just a story, it is a true story, the story of reality. And as we begin to sort of explore the characters on the stage, God, not only as author, but as hero, and the villain in the story, and his heart of malice, knowing that he can no longer really get back at God, and so he goes after us merely to do anything he can to ruin the sacred romance. That's his only objective. Everything he does is geared toward that end to ruin the romance, then who are we? What is the role that we are playing? And as you think about those two characters for you, whoever those, uh, those representations are, what is the role in between those two that you find yourself playing? What is the story that you are living in? See, most of us are living out a script that someone else wrote for us. Most of us are acting our parts that other people have cast us in. Usually parents, uh, close friends, peers, and it begins very early in life as the arrows begin to land in our lives. A friend of mine is uh, struggling deeply to make life work. A committed businessman in in many ways, um, more than committed, driven, compulsive, desperate to succeed in his career, fighting against the words of his father that he spoke before he died when he told him, you will never amount to anything. And what is the role that his father has cast him in? Loser. Failure. And he is doing everything he can to fight against that role because he fears it's true. I think about uh, the uh, little girl that was um, in a large family and kind of got lost in, the, in just the busyness of the household and never really captured her parents' attention for anything, but saw some of her older siblings kind of rocket off the deep end and found her role in being the good girl, that that was how she could, um, if not get love, then at least get a level of appreciation from her family. I'll be the one who doesn't rock the boat because everyone else is. You see how this begins to work out? That's the script that was written for her by her family setting. You're the good girl, and really what we want from you is to just, you know, don't do what your siblings did, okay? Don't go that direction. Frederick Biegner, in his autobiography, talks about the process of our lives and how this happens to us. And he's telling his own story, but then he applies it to us all. In referring to his own parents, he says... Starting with the rather too pretty young woman and the charming but rather unstable young man who together know nothing more about being parents than they do the far side of the moon, the world sets into making us what the world would like us to be. And since we have to survive, after all, we try and make ourselves into something that the world will like better than it apparently did the person that God created us to be. Buechner goes on to say, that is the story of all our lives. And in the process of living out that story, finding something that is acceptable to the world, finding something that gets you some level of of attention or at least safety at the barest minimum, in the process of living out that story, Buechner said, the original person gets buried so deep, our heart gets buried so deep that most people end up hardly ever living out of it at all. And as Brent quoted last night, instead, we live out all these other selves that we are constantly putting on and taking off like coats and hats against the world's weather. So much of the journey ahead into the romance that is most deeply true is a journey away from the smaller stories and the false selves that are created for us and which at some point we all embrace and try and live in. The important point here is that identity, your identity, who you perceive yourself to be today and what you perceive your place to be was bestowed upon you. Identity is bestowed. And the French philosopher Gabriel Marcel is so good on this when he describes that there really is no such thing as an individual. We are inter Because we are made in the image of the Trinity, again, we are relational at the core of our being. You will draw your identity from other people. Of course you will. Jesus draws his identity from the Father. He's not a self-made man. He delights in being called the Son because of his relationship to the Father. All the members of the Trinity derive their sense of place and being and purpose, their sense of self, from their relationship with the others. Out of perfect love, the Father would not be the Father if there weren't the Son. He might be Yahweh, he might be Jehovah, he might be El Shaddai, he might be omnipotent, all of that, but he would not be Abba if it were not for us and, of course, first for Jesus. Identity is bestowed. You will draw it from your relationship with other people. I remember talking just a couple weeks ago with a woman who is struggling deeply in her relationship with her man. And after years and years of marriage, she just said to me, I just want to feel like a priority to someone. Of course, you do. You long to be the focus of someone's attention. In the book, I tell the story of Luke, who's our youngest boy. He's four now, he was two at the time. I was puttering in the garage doing some Tim Allen, you know, sort of mindless thing, as men do. And um, Luke comes in to the garage, and he says, Mir, which means come here. And he turns around, and he walks off into the living room. So I follow him, and I go into the living room, and he says, sit. And so I sit, and he says, why? And he gets on his wonder colt, you know, the things with the springs on them, right, the little, little horses. He's got a cape on, sword in his side. He is clearly living out the sacred romance, right, where he is the hero on some quest. And so he takes off, and I blow it. I let myself get distracted by something outside the window, and I'm looking out the backyard, and Luke stops, and he says, watch me. It's a precious story, because Luke wants what every one of us wants, the gaze of another in loving affection. We want glory. This is Jesus' greatest treasure. In John 17, he says, I can't wait till you are with me in Act 4. Because then you will see the glory that the Father has given me from before the foundation of the world. It's his greatest treasure, the attention of the Father. You see, we long for glory. We long for the gaze of another. And yet we do not live in relationships like the Trinity. That's not what this world is like, not for most. And so we come into the world longing for this identification, longing to find our place in the story. And we begin to learn, as Buechner says, that something else is wanted from us other than our hearts. So few people are ever invited to the table to live from their heart. Joey's the smart kid. His role is to be smart. He'll help you with your homework, and he'll grow up to be a computer programmer, right? and Julie is the pretty girl, and her role is to be pretty. We'll let her be a cheerleader. It has nothing to do with their hearts, you see, but rather something functional that the world can take from us. And so we begin to put on the coats and hats, trying to figure out who we are in this story. Every woman at some deep level must come to deal with the issue of her beauty, And what her role is in her feminine heart in the story. And every man has to deal with the same issue, but for him it is strength. And what the role of his masculine heart is in the story. And most men and women are either running from or trying to find their strength and their beauty. The glory of their heart. There's a great line in one of Springsteen's songs where he's just describing the the boulevard on a Friday night in kind of 1960s and 70s American culture, where he says, girls comb their hair in rearview mirrors, and boys try to look so hard, All right, as they live this out. Um, Luke is four now, and his little cousin came to visit this week. She's two, and she is just an absolute doll, just bright and sparkling and full of life. She was not in the door ten minutes before he has his Superman outfit on. And he is leaping off the furniture. He's running around the room. He knows he can't do this. This This is the living room. This is Stacy's domain, right? And it's the nicer furniture in the house, and he's, he's climbing up on the arms of the chairs and throwing himself off. and he, It was just precious. Do you see that? He is inspired by her beauty. The beauty of a woman draws a man to courage, and the courage of a man's heart allows a woman to rest. And there was Luke living out the sacred romance there with his cousin. Um, every one of us, lives, as I said, with memories of what came before because of the image of God in us. But there is something eternal in the human soul with echoes of what came before. We remember the intimacy of Act One, and we long for it. But we also live, each of us, with a memory of Eve and a memory of Adam. There is something in us that is haunted by the idea of beauty and strength of courageous hearts, of intimacy, mercy, tenderness. And every little boy is asking one question. Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? I take my boys rock climbing, and Samuel, the oldest, the eight-year-old, was on the rope, and uh, we top-rope, so it's an entirely safe procedure. Ladies, just relax. Um, The mothers are out there thinking I'm, you know irresponsible father at this point, but entirely safe, they're top-roped, but there's enough of the thrill of the adventure, the quest there, that it really shapes a boy, and uh, Samuel was climbing, and he got to a place that was kind of hard, and he started getting a little teary and and kind of shaking, and I said, Sam, come on down, there's a great rock over here, let's go try that one, come on, and he said, no, dad, I, I want to do this. Okay, well, here. So I got up there, and I kind of gave him a little boost over the hard part, and then he's going on up, and as I'm belaying him, I'm talking to him, encouraging him. You know, those of you who rock climb know you do this. You kind of talk back and forth. Sam, you're doing great. Super. Right hand. Excellent move. That's great. Sam, you are a wild man. And so he gets to the top of the rock, and he he unclips, and there's a walk down, and he comes down, and now I'm working with Blaine, and Blaine, our middle child, is... A bonsai. It needs no exhortation to do anything dangerous. He's just flying up this thing. <laughs> okay. And uh, Samuel, it's just ten minutes later, Samuel kind of sidles over next to me, and he says, uh, Dad, did you really think I was a wild man up there? <laughs> oh, you see that? That is too precious. You can't miss those moments. Every little boy is not asking, am I a good boy? Right? So much of what we offer in the Christian faith feels so emasculating because the highest aspiration we set before a boy is to be a good boy. That's not what Samuel wants to know. He wants to know, do I have what it takes? Do I have a strength that the world needs that I can offer? Very few little boys ever hear, yes, you do. And so as men... They're living out some smaller role in some safer story. Every little girl is asking one question. Am I lovely? Is there something in me that you find delightful? And very few little girls ever hear, yes, you are. And so they choose to offer something else. In the Christian circles for women, it happens to be efficiency. That's what most Christian women find to offer instead of their hearts. They just get very busy and become efficient women. Retreating men and efficient women and something tragic has been lost. Because we will draw our identity, the affirmation of our souls, our glory from someone else, the key question is, from who? And the answer will always be, from the person upon whom you've had the greatest impact. In the second grade, I fell in love with my teacher, Mrs. McGrath. She was wonderful. She was bright, and she was creative, and she was engaging, and she was pretty, and she noticed me. She noticed that I could speak. She picked me to be the narrator of the school play. Mothers wept. <laughs> fathers beamed with pride. And look what I do for a living. Is this astounding? You see, this is all in your story. Places where you have tasted glory. Places where you did something. I was sharing this story with some folks in a publishing group down in Colorado Springs. We were kind of talking about how these coats and hats happen. And this woman said, well, you know what? It was in the third grade for me. And I was really good at my G's. And so the teacher called me up in front of the class to show the class my G's, right? You know what she does for a living? She's an editor. She corrects people's writing. It's just too much, right? You see how this works its way out. Remember the story of Helen of Troy? Ninth century, Greece, right? She's the wife of Menelaus, the king of Greece. Paris, prince of Troy, comes to their home for dinner one night, and depending on the version of the story you've heard, he either just abducts her or she falls in love with him, but the two of them steal off, under cover of darkness, and go back to Troy. Menelaus, her jealous husband, amasses the entire Greek army with his brother Agamemnon, 1,000 ships to go and lay siege on Troy. It's the beginning of the Trojan Wars. All over one woman who was lost and whose lover is absolutely committed to recovering. And that story still haunts us today because there's something in us that wants to believe that there really is, as Shakespeare says, a face that would launch a thousand ships. And there is a heart that would launch those ships in order to recover the beloved. But why is she called Helen of Troy? She's Helen of Greece, right? Right? because her name will forever remind us that she is Helen the Captured and Rescued, Helen the Fought Over, Helen the Captive and Pursued. Whatever else Helen felt, surely looking out at the fires of Troy and the ships upon the sea and this massive siege, she must have at least felt that she mattered, that someone had noticed. That someone had made her a priority. As the center of an international crisis, you see, her identity comes from her impact on others. But the Bible says, the story tells us and reminds us that we are the center of a cosmic crisis. More than any international political event We caused the greatest invasion that the world has ever known. We are the ones, more than Helen, to be called the captured and rescued, the fought over. You see, most of us have never thought about the impact that we have had on God. We don't really think he's noticed. We don't really think we matter to him. But in Isaiah, he says, you will no longer be called forsaken, but you will be called sought after. Capital S, capital A. That is your new name. You are the pursued. You are my beloved. The scriptures use a a range of metaphors to describe our relationship with God. At the bottom, you have we are the clay. He is the potter. And then moving up the food chain, you have uh, we are the sheep. He is the shepherd. Not a particularly flattering picture. I mean, it's nice to have a shepherd around, but sheep are not exactly the most intelligent, graceful animals in the world. They are known for their stupidity and for their inclination to get themselves into tight spots. And then moving up, we are the servants, right? And he is the master. Most Christians never get beyond this point right? And servants, I mean, you don't have to live in the barn, right? You at least get to come in the house, but you've got to wipe your feet and don't talk too much, right? That's sort of the feeling that people have in their relationship with God, right? Don't ask for too much. But the scripture keeps going on, on this sort of metaphorical ascent. We are the children, right? And he is our heavenly father. And children get the run of the house, right? They don't have to wipe their feet. I mean, mom wants them to, but they don't usually, and they still get to come in and they get to sit at the table and tell dumb jokes and spill their milk. And they're invited into the heart of things, right? They get to be part of the family. And then moving up, there's even a higher level, friendship. I enjoy a level of intimacy and, and camaraderie with my closest friends that I don't enjoy with my four-year-old yet, just because of the, the differences and, in our ages and where he is, you know. And Jesus calls us friends, doesn't he? You are my friends. But there's a final picture that God chooses more than any other as his favorite metaphor for what he wants with us. We are his lover. We are his beloved. It is almost beyond our imagining. God has moved heaven and earth to pursue us. Why? We have been given so many answers in the church, and so many of them are wrong. Well, it's um, obedience. It's uh, sacrifice. It's service. It's commitment. It's um, right doctrinal belief. It's not any of those things. God did not move heaven and earth to rescue you from the bonds of the evil one so that you would get busy. He rescued you for intimacy with himself. What does he want? He wants your heart. That's what he has come for. And it is so far beyond most of our experiences that that we're incredulous. I remember walking um, in the fields near my house with a close friend a couple years ago. This is a man who I just love and respect deeply. And um, we've known each other for 20 years. And um, he was talking in a way, just kind of sharing the quest as men and the journey and the struggle of the heart. And he was talking in a way that we would be friends for life, sort of making assumptions about the future together, there was this thought in me of, really? Why? What do you see in me that you even want to pursue like that? It is such a rare experience that we just assume there's nothing in us that's really wanted. I almost didn't write the book. Uh, Sitting in a coffee shop with uh, Brent several years ago and Colorado Springs and he was just talking about getting started on the project and I was really kind of trying to back out and the excuses I was making was that I was really busy and other things were going on but the real issue was I didn't know if what I had to offer from my heart would amount to much. You see the question of little boy is asking do I have what it takes I, I didn't know and Brent's invitation not to walk away from the book but to stay in it just baffled me. Really? I mean, you want me to work on this? Why? I don't get it. So few of us have ever been invited to live from our hearts that it is astounding to think that that is exactly what God wants from you. That your role in the story is far larger than you ever imagined. George Herbert, just a wonderful poet, speaking about the the idea of God pursuing our hearts says, my God, what is a heart that thou shouldst it so eye and woo, powering upon it with all thy art as if thou hadst nothing else to do? Think about the Titanic. Did Rose matter to Jack? Was there any doubt in her mind that she mattered to Jack? None. Because of the way he acted towards her. And how does God act toward us? Very much the lover, the pursuer, the rescuer. Very much the jealous lover. He will not let anything else have our hearts. The reason that we enjoy fairy tales more than enjoy them the reason that we identify with them in some deep place within us is because they always reveal two truths all of them have the same central truths that the hero really has a good heart right and that the beloved really does possess hidden greatness And what Brent was talking about with Cinderella right but both genders the beast and the frog right they're actually princes Aladdin is the diamond in the rough you see, as Beekner says, not only does evil come disguised in the fairy tale, but good does as well. Your identity has been disguised for years beneath other coats and hats. You do not even know the weight of your own soul and your glory. And so much of what God does when He comes into our lives in the disruptive way He does is because he wants to call us out of those smaller stories and those littler roles and call us into our true being, call us into our true identity. A film clip that illustrates this in such a wonderful way. And, you know, I need to make a qualification. We do have film clips for both genders. There's been a little bit of leaning towards the male side of things, but partly that's just because I happen to be a man and... So does Brent, um, but ladies, we know you're tracking with us. You, you got to go back and pick up the guys a little bit, you know, and kind of. I mean, if we err on one side or another, now you know why. Um, the film Hoosiers, did y'all see that Indiana basketball? This is a great, great movie. 1950s, true story, right about this. Small-town team. I mean, they don't even have enough guys to make a team initially. Um, Small-town high school basketball team, and the boys are playing the role of losers, right? Nobody believes in them. Nobody expects any greatness of them, right? And uh, Gene Hackman is a has-been coach, and nobody expects much from him, right? And he comes into this uh, high school... uh, and he begins to shape these boys into a team. He begins to call them out. And he begins to mold them into a team. He begins to speak into them. He sees their glory, and he calls it out. And then there's a character in the film, Shooter. He's played by uh, Dennis Hopper. And he's been cast in the role by the whole community as the town drunk. And no one will let him out of that role. Hackman... Sees something in Shooter. He happens to know that Shooter knows more about basketball than probably any man alive. And so he invites the town drunk to be his assistant coach, to the shock of you know, the entire community. You know, they gossip, you know, all of that, right? Just like Jesus and the disciples, you see. He chose a tax collector, he chose you know, prostitutes, good night. So he calls Shooter out on one condition, that he has to remain sober. And he's got to put on a tie when he comes to the games. And so, bless his heart, Tudor does. And he's got the DTs, and he is really having a hard time. But he's there, and he's sitting on the bench with Hackman. He's playing the role of the assistant coach. He's calling him up into a larger story. The team now is doing great. This is the point in the film where they're firing on all pistons, they're winning games, the whole town's behind them and they're getting caught up in something heroic, something that the whole community can be a part of, and Shooter's right there. And then Hackman does the wildest thing. Hands in the playbook, and he walks off the court. <laughs> you know what? That's the look on the disciples' face. In Acts chapter 1, when they say, Is it now, Lord? You're going to kind of like wrap this whole thing up now, right? Is it now you're going to bring in the kingdom? And Jesus says, Oh, you don't get to know that. I'm going into Act Four, you carry on the invasion. And he hands us the playbook. <laughs> See, so much of what God leaves unresolved in our lives is his way of saying, I refuse to treat you as anything other than my beloved. I know your glory, I know your strength, your courage, the beauty of your heart. I know who you truly are. Now come and live it. Come out and live in the larger story. The trials of our lives are God's way of saying I believe in you. You can handle it. Wow, I sound younger. This is so powerful to offer this and I hope that you are enjoying it. Tell your friends about it. This is a kind of a unique summer offering with John Eldridge and Brent Curtis now here on the Ransomed Heart Podcast.